Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello and welcome to Movies vs. Capitalism, an anti-capitalist movie podcast. I'm Rivka Rivera. And I'm Frank Capello. Rivka, how's it going this week? It's a good week. You know, springs are coming. Things are good. How about you? Oh, man, I have a great story for you. So, you know how we talk about on this show how we have these relationships with the art that we grew up with as kids, and then that perspective can change as you're, you know, as you learn more about the world or the artist or what have you. And that's a good thing, you know, perspective should change. So, so this past week, uh, me and my partner went to go see Bruce Springsteen at Barclay Center. Oh, wow. Very exciting. As we all know, I'm from New Jersey. This is a huge <laughs> cultural touchstone for us. I was very excited. My partner, not as excited. You, <laughs> you know my partner. Um, I do. And she was like, and don't get me wrong. She was, she was excited for me. So we're getting ready for the show. And she had just uh, was speaking with one of her coworkers and told him. And he was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. Bruce Springsteen. And then. On our way out of the apartment, we ran into my downstairs neighbor, and she was like, oh, my God, Bruce Springsteen, that's amazing. And you know, my partner and I are walking to Barclays, and I'm like, this is going to be pretty exciting. And she was like, honestly, and I'm just going to say this because I, I think I need to, but this might just be a white person thing. Um, <laughs> my partner is not white. Uh, her family is from Mexico. And I was like, I, I don't know. I don't think, I think, I think. I think Bruce transcends cultural boundaries and she's like, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll see. And both, and, and we'll both see. Her, yeah. <laughs> her coworker <laughs> and my neighbor were also white for context. So we get to Barclays <laughs> and we're, we're walking through the crowds. We're getting to our seats and she's like, yeah, I don't, I don't see any non-white people here. And I was like, hold on. I think we'll, <laughs> I think we'll see some, believe me when I tell you, we saw maybe <laughs> three not white people at the Bruce Springsteen concert. So yeah, so it was a real um it was a real eye-opening experience for me and you know and I and I accepted it. I was like, "You know what? You're right. This is this is just a white people thing." I do love Springsteen, but I don't like love Springsteen. You know, I'm not like I didn't get tickets. And of course, I'm sure there are people out there. It's probably also an East Coast thing. Definitely an East Coast thing. But how was the concert? Oh, the concert rocked. I mean, <laughs> Absolutely. Did right. you sing along? I sang along to some, not as much as some of the people that I was yeah. uh, near in the audience, but yeah, I played for yeah. like four hours. Dude is seventy three years old, was jumping around on stage. That's amazing. Springsteen's amazing. I left and I was like, Bruce Springsteen is literally in better shape than I am right now, and like I am a thirty five year old. So it was an illuminating experience. <laughs> we should before we get to our conversation, we should talk about the big big news from this past mm. week. And no, I'm not talking about Donald Trump's arrest in Manhattan. I am talking about the new Barbie trailer, which which dropped a couple days ago. Did you watch the new Barbie trailer? I did watch it. I watched it because you said we were going to talk about it. I wasn't okay. I didn't run. To, I didn't run to watch it. Um, of course, if, if you don't know what we're talking about, this is the upcoming Barbie film directed by Greta Gerwig, also written by Gerwig and Noah Baumbach, starring Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, Issa Rae, America Ferreira, and many, many others, as you will see if you watch the trailer. And I don't know, I feel like the big question behind this is, right, like, is this going to be a scathing indictment of capitalism or is this pro-capitalist propaganda who knows? Like, are we getting like a Josie and the Pussycats Lego movie situation or are we mm. getting a literal Barbie movie? What were your thoughts? What was your initial takeaway from the trailer? Like, what do you think? What's your prediction? My prediction is that they're it's it they're going to be aiming for that Josie and the Pussycats Lego movie meta textual. Yeah. Like we're doing the like this is SpawnCon, but we're commenting on the fact that yeah, it's SpawnCon. Like yeah, it's all very, very winky. You know, Greta Gerwig is one of our most exciting young female filmmakers. And so I'm hoping that she had a an idea as a strong idea as to why she wanted to direct the Barbie movie, like like a Barbie story yeah, that she, like she wanted viewpoint. to tell. Yeah, a perspective. Mm -hmm. So I am hopeful. But even even the best possible version of the Barbie movie will still be, you know, riddled with massive contradictions in the fact that it is 
a, a giant piece of IP property produced by the giant studio system specifically to sell more Barbie dolls. So, you know, as totally. as critical as it could be, it still ultimately will be, you know, basically just like a big uh, a big Barbie advertisement. Yeah, it was um kind of triggering, to be honest, to like witness, because I feel like at least my experience as a millennial female child um, growing up with Barbie is like, oh, oh, right. Like all the eating disorders. Oh, right. Like all the fucked up shit. And to see it, even even when even like something that I'm like, I'm sure this is going to have a criticism. You're still like, wow, there's a part of your brain that's like, I should want to look like Barbie. Why is that? Why is that voice saying that in my head? You know, it's like triggering all mm. those synapses. So that makes me kind of sad because if the trailer's doing that, it's so massive. I just think about the effect of that on all everyone, not just women and girls and people who identify that like in the world, like I feel for everyone who has to encounter <laughs> the stuff that comes across with that imagery. And there wasn't like there wasn't anything yet in the trailer that you're like, that's the POV, right? Like that's the perspective. That's where it's going to be cutting. You're just like, I hope it is. I think everyone's hoping because we've seen it before. But it's also interesting in the context of like particular 90s eating disorder glamorizing, being back in fashion, the conversation around Ozempic and died just like this whole thing that's coming back i'm like where is this gonna sit in the com i'm just really curious to see what the conversation around beauty standards particularly like barbie european beauty standards and like barbie was known for being like we're just gonna put barbie in different colors and you're like she still looks like a white girl just in different shades like you're not making an an impossible version of and of course they have the feet in the beginning of so maybe there's going to be some poking at that but I'm I was a little I was like cautious like I could feel my armor go up you know in watching it but then I was also super excited so it's always confusing yeah it's curious that they haven't uh included more of the film's perspective in this trailer or there's been a couple of teasers so far maybe they're trying to maybe they're withholding it to try to appeal to as broad of an audience as possible I don't know yeah most most likely I'm skeptical yet kind of hopeful and I think we'll probably have to and should see the Barbie movie and then talk about it on this podcast when it comes out. So now to someone who wishes they were a Barbie or at least paints themselves the color of one. <laughs> wow, that's very good segue. Good You're segue. Good at this. Thank you. Um, yeah, we should I'll talk let you, about- I'll let you pick it up from there. Who am I talking about, Frank? Yeah, we could talk about the Trump arrest for just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, this past week. Uh, Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg charged Trump with 34 felony counts for falsifying uh, New York business records. Uh, This had to do with the payment to Stormy Daniels, but also a couple of other people that they were paying off during this time. And yeah, Trump was arrested. We're recording this the day after Trump was arrested. He had to go to his arraignment, you know, do the whole perp walk thing and yeah it was a it was a big day for liberal democrat twitter people were (laughs) celebrating people were popping that champagne people were popping champagne because you know we did it america fixed that's that's all i but i'm joking but i think that's really how a lot of liberals view this as like oh if we just get donald trump behind bars then america will be fixed we'll we will have done it like He's this anomaly that just came up out of nowhere. Yes. I recently saw, okay, this is where my brain went, and I hope this tracks for those of you listening. If it doesn't, that's okay. We'll move on. I saw like um, a TikTok video of this, these kids who were like this teacher being like, if you can answer this one question, you will all get to go on recess for 20 minutes extra and these this kid who was like was like oh my god like hands clasped like praying starts crying like this has got to happen this has got to happen and when they answer it right like the tears of joy and celebration that they got was just like yeah like <laughs> wild that's the same energy to me <laughs> <laughs> and I, my, and i feel like i sit somewhere around i fit sit somewhere in the place of like Because you're like, something else is going on that this kid is so hyped for. Like, they really, you know what I mean? Like, you're Mm -hmm. like, there's more to the story because I think this really is just like, 
I understand. Like, obviously, we're so happy for this moment. But there's like, this is the champagne's out now. Like, I don't know. I just feel very like, oh, okay. Like, this is a part of it and exciting. But I mean, I think the things that I'm here for, (laughs) I suppose we'll go with that, Mm. are that this is like, hopefully going to set a precedent that like, because this isn't the first president to commit a crime. Like, no. we know this. We're not this for We've had some war crime. Like, <laughs> If anything, all of them have committed crimes. If anything, all of them, right? So is this going to set a precedent for, like, actually talking about the crimes that our presidents commit? Um, and also, are we going to start talking about corporate crime? Because that's what this is, right? And in the context of Donald Trump, we're ready to talk about corporate crime. But are we going to really be willing to, like, oh, are we holding corporate crime accountable all of a sudden? Because if that's the case, like... Let's go. Apparently not, because this administration is deeply embedded with a lot of corporate crime and mm-hmm. corporations. But that's what like I'm like, then let's talk about corporate crime. I hope for the same things that you're hoping for. I am not confident that that's what will come of this. I think this is I think this is just the culmination of years of the establishment wing of the Democratic Party and its voters and just liberals in general putting all of their blame and fears and whatever just onto right. this onto the orange man the orange man who is a once in a generation anomaly and you know like i said if he just goes away then everything will be solved yeah right it's like if you think about looking at the scope of american politics and it's kind of like you see like this you know this the small circle is just like you just see the left and the right you just see the blue and the red and then the politicians that rise in and out of that system and like that's that is it that's the entire realm of politics that you understand and you view so when you look at through that small circle yeah it makes sense it's like oh yeah there, there was like the red side had a really bad guy that came up and he's really bad so if we get him out then like the blue side will be able to do stuff again. But then like once you actually become more radicalized and you understand how the political economy actually functions, then that circle gets wider and wider. And then you start to see all of the financial and corporate business interests that are that surround that circle and mm-hmm. are actually pulling the strings. And like that is that is so much more of the problem than just like just one fucking demagogue coming along and you know, like the economic conditions that were in place that allowed someone like Trump to rise are still here. If not, they are worse right. than when his rise occurred. So, yeah. Right. And since this is a movie podcast, if we're looking at this in terms of narrative, like the narrative exactly like you're saying, set forward that this is the bad guy. And once the bad guy is captured and taken away, like bad guy things stop happening. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think that everyone like I don't think that everyone celebrating obviously like thinks about it that simplified but I do think that's like a narrative and the problem is that that narrative while it provides like momentary relief and I do think like yes celebrate we need to celebrate the moments we can because this world is too fucking dark so I have no no problem like pop champagne whenever you want but like the problem with that narrative is that if you keep playing it and it doesn't work out that way that's where you get people to disengage and just feel powerless because there's no other narrative being put forward you know you just like start to pull back when you're like well i'll play this tape again oh why are we back at the top of this movie it's like a groundhog's day and the last thing i'll say even more dangerously is those people who usually like let's just say like liberals who usually follow that narrative that you're talking about those are usually the same voters who will prevent progressive or leftist candidates and policies from going through or for voting for them you know the people who are like anti-bernie because they were like that's too radical if we go too radical then you're gonna you're gonna ensure that we get trump like if we go too far left then we'll definitely get trump or someone like trump and it's like well no you're just you're playing into the ratchet effect if we always just kind of keep ratcheting to the right then Nothing is going to get better, and that's going to create the conditions for a worse Trump to come along at some point. If we don't actually embrace like progressive economic policies that actually help the working class and lift them out of poverty, yeah, then fascism is still gonna still gonna happen. But shout out to all the people who have been protesting and showing up. I know, like Marjorie Taylor Greene was here in New York saying some dumbass shit, like you know. But the but I just love New Yorkers who show up to like shout that down but even more so i love the artists who show up to just like create like there's some of my favorite art happens at these protests and i've seen some great stuff going around the internet and like 
one thing Trump has really given us, like some really creative, beautiful, critical <laughs> work <laughs> in backlash to to our favorite orange man. The memes have been top notch <laughs> since <Yeah. laughs> since his election. Yes. All right. Well, we just covered a lot of ground, so we should get to our conversation. But before we do, just want to let you all know that this podcast is produced by the two of us. We perform all of the necessary labor to make this show happen. And as we're trying to practice our anti-capitalist values, we will not be selling ads on this show. We rely completely on community support to keep the show going. So if you're able to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. For just $5 a month, you get access to our entire back catalog of premium episodes, and you'll be directly supporting this show you can also leave us a one-time contribution in our tip jar, and you can find all of those links in the episode description in your podcast player or by going to mvcpod.com. You can also help us out for free by leaving a rating and review for this show on your podcast player. It only takes a few seconds, and it is very helpful in boosting the algorithm and getting this show in front of more people, so we really appreciate it. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with our conversation about Chinatown with Julia Rock. Our guest today is an investigative reporter at The Lever, the company that produces this podcast. Uh, Julia Rock covers business, politics, and all of the places that they overlap. Julia, welcome to Movies versus Capitalism. I'm so glad to be on this podcast. Thank you. Absolutely. You're our first Lever reporter, and we've talked a lot about politics and our political development, but What's that relationship to film for you? What is the relationship for me between politics and film? Yeah, I mean, I know you and I have st talked about politics a lot, but we haven't talked about movies a lot. So yeah, what's your what's your movie history like? You know, this is a great question. Uh, someone is making fun of me recently because I actually said that Chinatown like was w one of my favorite movies. And they were like, why are all of your favorite movies Roman Polanski movies and Woody Allen movies? <laughs> but I grew up in a household where, for whatever reason, I guess both my parents are lawyers and my mother is Jewish. I only watched noirs and Woody Allen movies. <laughs> so that is my movie history. And for me, I think... You know, it's interesting how as your politics develop, I think this has been a big concept of the show and change. What you see in movies really changes. Um, and 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 so it's funny to sort of watch movies years later, you know, that maybe I had watched when I was younger or watched in college uh, that now I have a little bit of a, a, a different perspective on. But, you know, yeah, I... Chinatown is almost too easy uh, to to talk about uh, the politics, which which worried me about this a little bit. Although I'm sure we'll we'll get beneath the surface. Well, let's jump into it. So you chose Chinatown for us to watch. This movie was written by Robert Town, directed by Roman Polanski, starring Jack. I didn't mean to point at you when I said Roman Polanski. <laughs> <but> I realized <laughs> suddenly Roman Polanski is your best friend. We want everyone to associate Julia with Roman Polanski by the end of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> it stars Jack Nicholson, Faye Dunaway, John Huston, and Perry Lopez. The budget for this film was $6 million. Worldwide gross was $29.2 So it was, it was quite successful. Quite yeah. successful. Uh, it was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, but only won one. That's a hard thing to say. It only had one win, which was for Best Original Screenplay. And it's recognized by the American Film Institute to be one of the greatest American films of all time. It's set in Los Angeles in 1937 and tells the story of private detective Jake Giddies, played by Jack Nicholson, who's hired by Evelyn Mulray to spy on her supposedly cheating husband, Hollis Mulray, the chief engineer for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. And after Jake takes photos of Hollis and a mysterious younger woman, which become public, Hollis turns up dead, and the real Evelyn Mulray, played by Faye Dunaway, threatens to sue Jake. From there, Jake becomes embroiled in a scandal involving L.A. water rights, political corruption, and high-powered business interests. So this movie was released on June 20th, 1974, a little bit of historical context for what was going on at that time. The 1973 oil crisis ended in March of 1974 after OPEC lifts its embargo against the United States. It is five years into the Vietnam War and anti-war protests are taking place around the world and it'll still be another year until the war ends. The TV show Happy Days debuts and the tabletop game Dungeons and Dragons is released. One year earlier, the Supreme Court's decision in the Roe v. Wade case federally legalized abortion across the United States. 
And in March of 74, seven former White House officials are indicted for their role in the Watergate break-in and charged with conspiracy, which led to the eventual resignation of President Richard Nixon in August of 74. And a little bit of extra context, five years prior to this, in 1969, Sharon Tate and four others were murdered by members of the Manson family cult in the home that she shared with Roman Polanski. So that's it's a lot going on at the time of this film's release, like right in the middle of the 70s, the golden age of uh, American cinema. But Julia, the first thing we like to start all these conversations with is we ask our guests, why did you choose this movie? You know, I think I chose this movie um, because when I watched it for the first time, I couldn't really believe that it had been made in 1974, that it had been released in 1974, which, you know, given the context uh, you just outlined was was maybe stupid because obviously it is very much a Watergate era movie. But I think, uh, you know, obviously the the water war plot has really been the story of California for at least the past 10, if not 20 years now. Um, and I hadn't really realized how similar some of the water politics or potentially these are obviously fictional water politics, um, but were, you know, back in the day. And so that was what really caught me about it. You know, obviously this is a movie that features uh, murder and incest and, and um, you know, the water issues are in some ways sort of the backdrop, but that was what really um, got me interested. Yeah, it's the classic story of corporate interest, corporate influence, corrupting politics and throwing a bunch of ordinary people, in this case, the farmers in the San Fernando Valley, just completely under the bus to serve those higher interests. Rivka, what was your experience rewatching it at this point in your life? Well, I'm so happy, Julia, that you chose this film because for me, it was, in fact, not a rewatch, but it was one of these oh. daunting, as I'm sure for, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have this. It's like one of those daunting pieces of cinema that you're like told that its reputation, reputation precedes itself and you are told consistently that it's like the best movie ever made. And like, if you dare to write screenplays, you better know Chinatown. So I was like, all right, let's get, and I was like, let's get ready. Let's watch Chinatown. But simultaneously, I was also like, uh, sounds like an academic task. So I put it off. So this was my first time and I had COVID while I watched it. So I did have the time. And I think it was, an, it, yeah, it was interesting because of all that. I think a lot of it I'm watching like, Okay, when's it going to be like the best cinematic movie of all time? <laughs> was my experience. I watched it again and I think the reason it has that reputation is because the structure of it is pretty incredible. It's complex and so like you were saying a lot of the politics of it are are intrinsic in that complexity which make it great in that way that it doesn't feel like you're being dictated to but the the drama and the mystery and the noir of it all is so ingrained with the politics of it. So it really is such a political film about the corruption of power, about greedy, rich white men, ultimately, but how that can infiltrate a whole system and a whole city and how that is into the core and the foundation of a city like Los Angeles. So, yes, that was my journey. I had a similar one. It had been a few years since I had rewatched the movie all the way through. And I think similarly, Rivka, I was had as I was watching it, I had the thought, you know, this is a little a little dry, a little slow at times, very long. And maybe a that's thirsty just thirsty for some water, if you will. Maybe a little thirsty. And maybe that's just 2023 brain. Maybe that's just our attention addled minds, like no longer knowing how to just sit with something and live in the pace of it and the slowness of it and the creeping fear and tension that builds throughout this movie. Cause it does. And it is, and I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not out here being like, actually Chinatown, not that good. No, this is clearly, <laughs> <laughs> clearly a very good movie. Like you said, this, this screenplay is regarded as one of the greatest screenplays ever written. It's studied, it's taught in screenwriting courses, but my big takeaway is that this 
is such an important movie because for those that don't know, this is pretty much ripped from the headlines, something that happened in L.A. in the early 1900s, the L.A. Water Wars, Julia, which you referenced. And I think it's very important. There are a few films out like this. Who Framed Roger Rabbit is another one that sort of speak to L.A.'s historic corruption, especially the the real estate corruption that has happened in L.A. over the course of many decades. I mean, basically, in this movie, you have, you've got Noah Cross, the rich guy. You've got Hollis Mulray, the engineer. There's this whole plot to divert water from the valley, to dry out these farmers in the valley and make their land worthless. And then once the land is worthless, then Noah Cross and all his rich friends buy up the land and they're going to sell it back to the city and they're end up going to end up diverting the water to the city anyway. So it's just like a whole get rich, not even quick. It's, it's a long, it's a prolonged plot. But that's basically, you know, what happened in the early 1900s. The mayor of L.A., Frederick Eaton, and the civil engineer William Mulholland of famed Mulholland Drive devised a plot to buy up farmland in the Owens Valley, sell it back to the city, and then use that land to construct the L.A. aqueduct and divert the valley's water to the city. So... I think this is an incredibly important movie for that reason, although you wouldn't necessarily know that this was pretty much a true story if you were just watching it on its face. But that was my big takeaway watching it was how important that is to get some of that history across. Yeah. And I think um, having lived in Los Angeles or anyone who's been in Los Angeles, visited Los Angeles, seen it, it was such an L.A. tale. It's interesting. It felt very true to me. Like I would assume it was true just because it was so clear in the LA River when you see how dry and desperate for water everything feels. I was like, oh, this is the tale of how we how we got here. It, it must be. It was pretty remarkable. There's a clip early on that I'd love to play that sort of sets the scene. This is in early on when um, Jack Giddies sort of, uh, he gets involved and Jack Giddies is this low rent detective who's just Jake Giddies, Rivka. Sorry, I, I just wanted to correct you before the audience. Jack Nicholson, Jake Giddies. Okay, well, thank God. Understandably there's a, there's, confusing. Yeah, and and let's also make it clear, like best screenplay of all time. But a lot of these names, I'm like Mole Ray and Mole the Hill. <laughs> I mean, I have some notes. Mole Holland. Mole Holland. It's like a little confusing, but um. Thank you. Jake Giddies is this low-rent detective who's invested in the truth at all costs, played beautifully by Jack Nicholson, willing to bend the rules in pursuit of this truth, gets involved. And this is from the first scene where he's in the courtroom where uh, Hollis Mulray is saying he won't build this dam because in the past there were, I think, 500 deaths. But then the farmers come in. So it's good. It sets up the question of who is paying you to do that, Mr. Mulray, which gets Jake, not Jack, curious, and our tale begins. But this part actually confused me a little bit. And maybe, Julia, you can explain this a little bit because Hollis... So this is like the council meeting where Jake first finds Hollis and Hollis is this the, the lead engineer for Water and Power. And he's basically like, I'm not going to build this dam because the last dam we built killed people. And I, it's, you know, I'm doing my due diligence. I'm ethically doing the right thing and not building this dam. But then the farmers get angry at him, even though he's technically on the farmer's side because he's uncovered. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, at this point, he's starting to uncover the plot that Noah Cross and all of his goons are a part of. So isn't Hollis in refusing to build this dam? Isn't this him not, uh, you know, not subjugating himself to Cross? That Like the whole, the whole actual, like, water mystery plot of it i still still i'm not a, i don't a hundred percent grasp okay same here the the water mystery plot is a little bit uh still confusing to me but i think in that scene the farmers don't yet know 
like explicitly about what it that the valley is intentionally being dried out. And I think their mm. understanding of the dam proposal is that it would stop water from leaving the valley. Um, and that what Mulray is saying is like there's the the sort of ecological and the environmental engineering basis for the dam is faulty. Uh, they can't do that. So, I mean, presumably at that point, I'm trying to remember the timeline now. Yes, by that point, he kn- he knows about the plot. He knows about Cross's plot. That makes sense. What I appreciate about that is while it was hard to follow and perhaps it could be our 2023 <laughs> brains, I certainly had the COVID brain thing happening, but that is the experience often of these kind of politics and that that kind of confusion enables and emboldens a person like Cross to take advantage, exploit the system because it's so confusing and it doesn't it doesn't have to like it's very clear at the end who the bad guy is but I liked that they were going after Mulray and yet we were like is Mulray on our side is he a bad guy you know so I liked I appreciated that and in that moment we're with Jake not Jack because Jake is also like all right what's up here should I should I investigate the who is paying you you know because he still thinks Mulray is the bad guy based on that moment this is when he first started investigating him i guess that's part of why the screenplay is great because you really are on the journey of like what is going who is the bad guy so speaking of bad guys rivka you made a point about giddies um that i i was hoping we could come back to for just a moment uh about him being a detective but so to be clear he's an ex-cop and a private investigator and the sort of two things are interesting to me about him in that sense. First, this this is, you know, me, a person who's never lived in L.A., doesn't know that much about L.A. It's very hard for me to watch this movie and not think of L.A. confidential, even if both of you have a much more vast uh, understanding of the city. But but the thing that I was, you know, thinking about is obviously in both cases, it's an inside job and the cops are in on it, which in L.A., is probably always true. And honestly, in most American cities, is probably always true. Sure. But so the, so there's that feature of Nicholson, of uh, Giddies' character. And there's actually one scene where he uh, sort of has an aside to a cop about whether they're still arresting people in Chinatown for spitting in the laundry. Like he's sort of making early on this explicit point that uh, the cops are sort of up to bullshit, that they're sort of the bad guys. There's also a scene early in the movie where he's in the barber shop and a banker is sort of calling him out for um, putting other people's personal lives in the paper, basically. And and there's this moment where he says, like, well, what do you do? You know, foreclose on people's homes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's sort of an important part both that he's not a cop anymore. He's outside the police force. He understands the cops to be sort of corrupt and in on things. And also that he does not want people to say he's a bad person. He's not doing noble work. I'm glad you brought that up because I also had written down how casually corrupt the police are in this movie. Right. And and every time we meet a cop character or an ex-cop character, there is a line about how corrupt they are. Like when we meet Mulvahill... Uh, I think Jake says something like, you know, when he was a lieutenant, he helped the rum runners. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a line about his ex-partner Escobar, about him having to uh, swim in the same waters as everyone else. So very important (laughs) to highlight that even in the 70s, it was very common knowledge that the police were corrupt, the (laughs) the police were sometimes bought and sold, um, or at the very, you know, at the very least, police abused their power and couldn't necessarily be trusted 100%. So it's... That's 100%, I think, the message of this film because it culminates in this scene, in this dramatic scene where they get to Chinatown after mentioning it the whole time. And I think one of the one of the things that was fascinating about this movie, having not known what anything about what it's about, you assume it's about <laughs> Chinatown, right? That's the title. And it's pretty amazing because it ends up being in some ways, this sort of history of L.A.'s displacement of people of color and white supremacy without being about that. But it is about that because it's so screamingly about what they're not talking about, which is Chinatown and the corruption there 
and the level of police brutality. The last line of the film, he keeps saying this mantra, as little as possible, as little as possible. And then, of course, we end on, forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. I want to get back to that, um, particularly talking about um, the gentrification and the role of people of color in this film. But she also says, Evelyn also says, before getting shot and murdered by the police... (laughs) My father, he owns the police, right? So, like, it is a film about the police killing our heroine, essentially. The only person who's really, when she finally does, is telling the deep, dark truth about this system, about the men who run it. So it's, yeah, it's at its core. It's it's anti-cop in that sense. I'm really glad you brought that up because this is the first time after seeing the movie where I understood the Chinatown metaphor because it's like a metaphor and it's not a metaphor at the same time because they use Chinatown as like a stand-in for you know this lawless neighborhood where anything goes there's rampant corruption there's rampant crime but it's specifically and purposefully othering because it is like you're saying it is a it's a community of people of color it's an Asian community so this is a it's a very conscious tactic to other this place and to make it seem like it's a terrible place. And that's and that's something that we see to this day in the way that, you know, communities of color, immigrants are scapegoated in this country. But the first time I realized how ironic it was that they are constantly disparaging Chinatown, even though it is the city of L.A. and the public officials and the government officials and the police and the rich white business interests that are actually the worst ones. They are actually the ones that are doing the most damage they are the ones that are upholding this system. And yeah, it's I, for the first time I realized, I'm like, oh, that's, I guess it is the best screenplay of all time. Look at that dramatic irony. Incredible. I also, while we're on this topic, I just want to talk about some of the other actors who were not as, as big names or given as big, not like starring in this film, but they are the actors who are representing this like, the world and the society outside of this sort of like bourgeois reality, which is the, you know, which is the centerpiece of the Giddies, but you always have a sense of like the Chinatown and the outside world that has already almost undergone all of this corruption and is sort of outside looking in almost like that world that's already like we know what's going on. And they're the eyes through which I was watching this film through. And that was the Evelyn's Butler Khan, played by James Hong, who was pretty um I thought he was incredible in this because there's so little and it is such a undeveloped role probably on the page Mm -hmm. and given what uh the actor the screen time the actor has but what this actor does with that screen time is pretty profound and I found a quote of his he said I think of his roles in general. I did the best as an actor to overcome the clichéness because I had to in order to keep working I took those roles and then I used what my teachers had taught me and put the real feelings, even if it's a villain. I try to find what makes the person really that person, which seems simple. But I think in a role like this in Chinatown, you just see how how valuable a brilliant actor like that can be for that role. Because if you pause and just watch his scenes, it's so filled with life. And I just that's the film I want to see is like all of these these other roles. And he, he is an actor as well. Just to give um, props, co-founded East-West Players, which was the first Asian-American theater organization and the longest continuously running minority theater in the U.S., which increased Asian-American representation in the industry. So um, and also Jerry Fujikawa was the gardener. And I thought the gardener was an amazing role as well. And so those were. Yeah, I thought those roles. And that's all credit, I think, to those actors. This film very much still stands out as like a as like the epoch of 70s filmmaking like it's a bunch of like you know it's a bunch of white men behind and in front of the camera so it's unsurprising that more of the cast isn't as diverse as we would like but yeah i agree with you Rivka those those performances really did shine through i mean i think everyone is really fantastic in this movie i think jack does all of the jack things charming funny you know, gets off some good one-liners. I was really blown away by Faye Dunaway's performance in this rewatch. I thought she played a woman who had experienced just so much trauma in her life, clearly, but also, like, uh, of that bourgeois status so well. Um, 
and all of the supporting characters. Yeah, for me, this was her film, which actually, speaking of the the white men in front of and behind the camera, I would love to talk about the misogyny and the storyline of misogyny and and Dunaway's character and sort of its intrinsic relationship to corruption and capitalism. But of course, so spoiler alert, if you were like me prior to this and do not know the plot of Chinatown, turn this off and you'll want to find out. Evelyn Mulroy, it, we find out in this sort of grand scene at the end, which is famous for like, my daughter, my sister, my daughter, my sister, when Giddies is smacking the shit out of her. Yeah. Which is like gross and brutal I don't know that I don't I wouldn't want it there, but, you know, it's part of it's part of this world, which is full of misogyny. We find out that Noah Cross had raped her at 15. Her father. Her father. Yes. And she gave birth to her daughter and her sister. And so and so when she, and she ran away to Mexico. And so when she comes back and she then Giddy's, you know, this is the big turn. He plots to help her run away again. This is how they all end up in Chinatown. And when Cross finds out what's, there's a lot that happens. This is why we don't do plot by plot on something like this. Best screenplay of all time. It's very complicated. But essentially, they end up back in Chinatown and the police shoot her and kill her before she can get away um, at the behest of her father, Noah Cross. And in the last scene, which he's wanted was to get his granddaughter, also his no, his daughter. Daughter and granddaughter. Daughter and granddaughter. Ugh. Yes, daughter and granddaughter. And there's this really creepy image of him just after his own daughter has been murdered. He just, he grabs her by the face and pulls her off. And so this was such a cynical, brutal end. But yeah. Chilling. That, that shot of him covering her eyes and mouth. Oh, that was horrifying. And extra complex given that four years after this film is made, Polan- our, our dear friend Polanski <laughs> is... Um, charged for raping a 14-year-old girl. And so there's many layers to this edible nightmare. But yeah, I'm curious your thoughts on this plot line. Yeah, Julia, are you pro or anti Noah Cross? Are you with it? Because we know... uh... Do you condone this? (laughs) Well, it's funny. I was um, thinking about this earlier today and, you know, the uh, sort of private control of a public resource for profit. Like, that's something I'm I'm very comfortable, you know, commenting on the politics of. But incest is like a little bit... Rape and incest are sort of beyond the... the Um, things I'm, I'm typically thinking about, uh, politically on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I think it is so remarkable that like Noah Cross is sort of trying to, let me think of how to say this, like, uh, he's trying to gain custody over his daughter. He's sort of trying to control, um, his, sorry, his granddaughter. Yeah. And daughter. Right. Okay. And daughter you know, is involved in the, um, his, his business partner, partner becomes his daughter's husband who, um, you know, he, of course, as we said, uh, raped his daughter, uh, to give birth to his granddaughter. So it's, it's sort of not just like the particular incest of the one incestuous relationship, but, but Mm. there's sort of like a, a, a broader incestuous plot where everybody is sort of, caught up in everybody else's business. Um, there's lots of sort of like peeking into the private lives of people, um, you know, cheating, murder. So it, there's sort of like the the very intimate familial affair, but then there's also this like broader familial affair. And I think that's sort of an interesting like metaphor for, or maybe it's not even a metaphor, maybe more of an allegory for the 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 political system they're sort of depicting here, um, where there are all these secrets that can't be spoken because of, you know, what the consequences would be. Um, and, and everybody's sort of caught up in everybody else's business and families and, and, and sexual affairs. I think that's all sort of part of the, the, um, political culture, uh, they're depicting, but it is like, shit, it's not something you see coming in the movie when you when you realize that her no. her daughter is also her sister. I think that's a great point, Julia, because the commod we've talked a lot about sort of the the commodification of women's bodies on film and how that t- 
takes place in this film, but like its direct connection to the idea of hoarding capital and hoarding wealth and keeping it in the family, you know, particularly in this, it makes me, it feels almost, I am not saying royal family is incestuous, but <laughs> am I? You know what I mean? It just feels like keep, it's it's another way of hoarding and power mongering it all to himself for like the point of power and the perversion of power. And so I think it is really important that those two things are in, are intrinsic and happening at once and you can't quite separate them. And and yet there's also something sort of interesting happening where this man is able to like divert an entire city's water and yet he can't like catch his own granddaughter. Uh like she's sort of beyond her grasp and you know he's hiring someone to to like get involved in his daughter's marriage, to get to her and all of these things. Like he exerts this complete political power and yet he can't really um, grasp and control these women. Although he does at the end. And then of course, he does Which is sort of the cynical, the <laughs> yeah, that like really devastating, like, oh, he wins. Like he totally wins, right? Well, his character is emblematic of that that extremely elite capitalist who is used to getting everything that they've ever, that they want, making it happen, taking what people say that they can't have. And that extends not only to the LA water supply, it also extends to these women who he fe he feels he is entitled to. He isn't, he feels that he is owed something by all of these people in the city and by these women in his family who he has abused. Um, mm -hmm. Also, Julia, I thought that was such a good point it, about the incestuous sort of like the rings of incestuous relationships in this movie is also very uh, emblematic of sort of just like elite circles because, mm -hmm. you know, the higher you go uh, in terms of, you know, wealth or fame or power these elite circles get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the higher and higher you go, the smaller and smaller they get. And everyone knows one another. Everyone, like, you know, has these relationships. I mean, this is a bad example, but, like, if you just Google, like, Kardashian marriage family tree, like, that shit goes on for it. That, that family has, has marriage ties to, like, nine other super famous families that you probably didn't even realize. You're like, oh, they're, re they, they're related? Again, bad example. but The Trump administration. Yeah, all of them the whole Democratic Party, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Incestuous. I wanted to play this one clip is near the end of the movie when when Jake finally accuses Noah Cross of the entire plot and uh, Noah gives him this line, which is sort of speaks to sort of, I don't know, his, his objective, his motivation, which is, you know, what you would expect from a super rich person at this time. How much you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? No, I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. I mean, that's it right there. That's, uh, that's kind of, that's the, the capitalist growth imperative. That's the profit motive, you know? That's, we always have to be looking towards the future. We always have to be expanding. We always have to be growing. We have to be reaching into new markets, finding new people to exploit, more money to make off of resources that we didn't even know were valuable yet. And it's incessant and it's never ending and it's going to destroy the planet. Sorry. Well, I'm so, <laughs> no, and I'm so glad you played that clip because it's another one of these moments where I, I, I keep remembering it wrong in my mind and saying it wrong. Gets, Gettys. Gettys. They say Giddies. both ways in they the movie. They say it both ways. Oh, well, okay. he okay. he intentionally, Noah Cross intentionally does that gits. And gits. he says gits. giddies. Okay, giddies. Where giddies, again, is like in the position of being confronted with someone, like being confronted with the police or the uh, rank capitalist and sort of having this naive, or, or he's um, at least like positioning himself as sort of more naive or maybe moral, which is an interesting role for his character to play. Because he's not really a hero. And yet, again, in this moment, it's like, oh, you're so rich. You know, why do this um, horrible scheme? As if, like, someone like Giddies doesn't, you know, have an aspiration like that. Or as if he wouldn't do something like, you know, diverting a city's water to make some money for himself and his friends. And I guess part of it is that he's just not on the inside. He's not in the police force. He doesn't have as much money as they do. He doesn't have, um, you know, a, a, a beautiful wife. 
Like he is sort of all along an outsider making these naive comments about people who are more evil than he is, sort of pointing things out for us. And I can't really, um, yeah, I'm curious what the two of you thought of that position for his character. I totally agree with everything that you're saying. But the, for me, the justification is the thing that happens near the beginning, which is Jake gets taken advantage of in this plot. Like he gets played, you know, the, the fake Evelyn Mulray cons him. His name is drag, drug through the paper. Everyone thinks that he was in on it somehow. And I think he has a line, you know, probably about like 30, 40 minutes into the movie where he says something like, no, no, no someone went after me and and like brought me into this. So now I have to figure this shit out. But it is interesting that he takes any sort of a moral position by the end. Cause you would think maybe a guy like this would just be like, Hey, you know, like cut me in on this water deal. It seems like you guys are going to make a lot of money off of this farmland. But uh, I guess, I guess he can't be a complete heel. Otherwise, you know, you'd hate him by the end of the movie. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, I think maybe this is why, it's the best American screenplay. But I do think his journey is intentionally he he starts as this sort of man who could who could become a Noah Cross and he ends closer to a Hollis Mulray. But in but he has to go through what I mean, has to go through what he goes through with Evelyn. And she's the real turn for him. She's the real like emotional pivot where in his pursuit of truth, he misses the truth and she reveals it to him. And the truth is that the system is bigger than him as like this. He he wants to play this heroine figure of like this detective who's going to like get down to it. And, you know, him in that sort of I just think it's so brilliant. His last being stuck in that mantra of as little as possible, as little as possible, because he was part of that system and he never really left it. Julia, I'm so curious. I wanted to ask you this question. As an investigative journalist, do you watch films <laughs> about either journalists or private eyes or detectives? And does it like, do you feel like, uh, I don't know, like sort of like an inside baseball kind of like, oh yeah, like this, uh, this gets me, <laughs> this gets me going. Cause this, cause that's what you do for a living is, you know, you're, you're, you're digging through, you're digging through documents, you're doing FOIA requests all the time. So like, what is your experience watching a movie about an investigation like? This is a great question because it has me going, thinking about something Rivka was just saying. So to answer your question, like I hate movies where journalists are heroes, just like <laughs> universally, which maybe is just about like some self-hatred I have, I don't know. But I, I really can't stand them uh, because I don't think that like, one, because I never find the characters to be heroic. And, and there's some obvious ones, like all the president's men, like you can only like Woodward and Bernstein so much. Um, you know, there's the, the Meryl Streep one, the post, I think it's called yep. spotlight, uh, a little bit more heroic, I guess, because it's a local paper and they're going after the church. But I don't like those movies because I don't think. That is how journalists should see themselves, I guess. And I, I don't think it's sort of correct to understand the pursuit of truth to be like the most moral one. And I don't think people really see journalists as like moral uh, people. And so I don't think the cinematic depictions often resonate very much with the real journalists <laughs> we know. Um, you know, Rivka was sort of talking about like this this uh, hero's journey or something for uh, Giddies because he he sort of becomes a good guy and he's sort of touched um, by Evelyn's story and and again maybe this is sort of you know fr what what Frank said just connected the dots for me which is like I don't like to see the detectives or the journalists as the good guys but I don't think he's really that much of a hero. You know, I don't think he has some, like, great moral crusade. I think it's just that, or not just that, but I think part of it is is maybe what Frank was alluding to, that he's on the outside. He's a little bit on the outside of these establishments. Um, you know, he's been wronged and, and is trying to sort of write things for himself. But I think to bring the thing full circle, that is sort of often how I see the journalists in journalist movies. Mm. Like, they have their own... Um, 
you know, personal ego, egotistical crusades that they're going for. And maybe there is something sort of noble about truth seeking or getting the bad guys. But I don't think I don't think journalists, I don't think detectives make great heroes. You know, they're doing their jobs and it's a job that should be done, but it's not it's not the most heroic one. Wow. A very judicious answer on that. That was good. <laughs> I just like watching uh I just like watching the mysteries unfold personally when it's a good one. This is a great mystery, yeah. Did either of you have anything you wanted to hit before we go to the awards? I did want to circle back to the ending for a moment. I'm I'm curious what you thought about this, uh, but this disappointing, or maybe not disappointing, completely um, apt thing that happens at the end, where even though like the entire thing was an inside job, you know, Noah Cross, as you talked about this uh, misogynist, this white supremacist, you know, terrible rank capitalist is behind everything. There's still a need to like locate the greed and corruption in the racialized other, which is, you know, the Chinatown. I mean, it's like the whole plot of the movie it is, is sort of about, you know, the evil and corruption and incest surrounding this man. And yet sort of we end that's like it's Chinatown. And it's like, is it Chinatown? And, you know, obviously they're not going to say, oh, it's, you know, the Nixon administration or like, oh, it's the mayor's office. But I don't think it's, um, I mean, obviously, as we've been talking about, it's not like some accident that it's the most racialized part of the city that is uh, sort of selected as being the site of the evil that you're never going to be able to get rid of. Yeah, I was conflicted because I felt, yeah, it was hard for me to really, I was like, there's a take in which the idea of Chinatown is that we understand it to be like, these were the, this was the first area already destroyed by this elite corruption by capitalism but it's I think I think that's part of it being like now I'm like I would rather see that story personally I would rather see those stories be given agency than see this story in the interior as literally all of those people watch on you know literally you're like the gardener the butler they all know like Giddy's is busy trying to figure the mystery out and you're like they know what's going on it's not a fucking mystery to them. They all have it figured out. They're like, this motherfucker's bad, you know? That was my sense, and I would rather see that. And and I just wanted to note one scene, Rivka, because you mentioned the gardener a couple times where he's fishing grass out of the backyard pond uh, that I think is, or, or grass or um, plants, you know, that have died because the pond has salt water in it. Mm-hmm which uh, Giddies doesn't know at the time that it's happening. And there's this like clue that we're given that is sort of based on an unusual sort of, well, I'll, I'll just say what the scene happens. He says um, that the water is not good. What does he say? He says something about the, that there are glasses in the pond, right? And and the Giddy's character hears grasses. Do you remember the scene I'm talking about? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Where he says the salt water isn't good for the for the, the glass. The water isn't good for the glass. Yeah. Yes. And sorry, the water isn't good for the glass. And Giddy's hears gra- glass, but he's saying grass. And if he had correctly heard grass, he would have been like, why wouldn't the water be good for the grass? Uh, but there's sort of this this mix-up that is rooted in like an unusual moment of just racism mm-hmm. that sort of could provide this clue for Giddies that he misses because this person is information that is incomprehensible to him or uninteresting to him. I thought that was a really interesting moment of a person who's like at the margins of the movie holding information that he, that he uh, misses. And then there's that other moment, just connecting it to that, just thinking about the people in the margins of this generally white bourgeois society that we're inside of when they're at the old age home and they have that back and forth about being Jewish. Do you take Jewish people here? Oh, no. And then he switches. And, you know, I'm just thinking, of course, we know Polanski, whose mother died in Auschwitz. Just thinking, yeah, it's just it's interesting because we're always in conversation on this podcast about what are the intentions of the artists making these movies, how those get perverted in our perceptions is particularly based on time as we look back and it's fascinating because I do think there's a take where this is like 
that seem like all the things we're seeing are like just our views and not giving credit to the filmmakers who made it or is there credit due? I don't know. I think there's definitely credit due, especially to yeah. to the whole Chinatown conversation of it. It's it's a very mm-hmm. I mean, we yes, see that yes. we we see that tendency a lot. We and see it today where it's very easy to just other or scapegoat a community or a place and blame them for the woes or the troubles that afflict, you know, the community at large. But in reality, it's actually Noah Cross. It's actually this guy who is pulling all the strings and making the city unlivable for thousands and thousands of people. All right, well, Julia, this is the point in the episode where we like to hand out awards for this film. The first award we give is called A Point with a View, and this goes to the character with the best politics in the movie. So who would you say has the best politics? It's it's a lot of ethically murky characters in this movie, so this might be a tough one. I think it's gotta be Hollis Mulray, right? Oh yeah, because he's he's uh, he's already on the plot. He doesn't want to do Cross's bidding. He's he's helping Evelyn and her daughter trying to keep them safe. And the crucial plot point where he when he tears apart from Noah Cross and because he wants to give the water to the people, like his heart is is there. And I think like in a movie like this, the first person to die, usually the one with the best politics. (laughs) (laughs) Usually the moral center of the movie. Yeah. Okay, our next award is Despicable You. This goes to the character with the worst politics in the movie. I mean, on the count of three. Yeah. (laughs) Noah Cross. Noah Cross? Yeah. (laughs) Didn't do the count. Didn't even need the count. (laughs) A terrible person, um, you know, is uh, scamming uh, thousands and thousands of farmers out of their land, is uh, using his money to uh, corrupt the entire L.A. city government, is a rapist uh, and uh, an abuser. So, yeah, Noah Cross. All right, and our last award is called A Star is Scorned. This goes to the supporting character that this movie should actually be about. For me, I'm going to say it's a tie between the gardener and the... And maybe it's maybe it's everyone who works in this household because I think they could tell the real tale. The Mulray household? In the Mulray, you know, they could tell the real tale in a fascinating way. And given that this is such a prolific film, I didn't mean to do... I feel like someone's I'm excited to hear everyone all of the comments on this because we're probably gonna you know learn a lot <laughs> um it is a prolific film but I do think that would be a great accompaniment piece if someone went out and made that I for whatever reason want to see the story of the 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 dude who worked in like the LA uh city records department <laughs> there was just so <laughs> it was just he was such a prick I, but like very funny like there's there's inherently nothing that interesting about him, but like I would like to see either like a mystery or like a like a movie about bureaucracy centering on someone who's just like their job is to just keep all of the records and just deal with all of the inane bullshit that he had, that people come in with every day. Like when Jack comes in, he's like, "I can take this out, right?" He's like, "No, this isn't a library. That's not like those are literally the L.A. city records. So no, you can't take those." So I would I would I'd watch his movie. I'm curious about the, okay, let me make sure I have her. Ida Sessions is the real name of the fake Evelyn Mulray. Yes. Okay. I'm curious about her, like, being hired by Noah Cross to pretend to be someone else to get in on this family business. Like, what who exact, what exactly was her job? You know, she sort of ends up wrapped up in this whole thing by virtue of taking, like, a shitty job. Um, I'd watch a movie about her. That's a really yeah. good one. Yeah. Do we think... Do we think that Ida is an aspiring actress? I mean, that must be what she's she's doing. Yeah, she gets yeah, hired to yeah. play a part. She just moved to yeah. Hollywood, wanted to have her dreams come. <laughs> Someone was like, "Ida, we got a big role for you. A big role. There's not going to be any cameras, but I, it's, this is going to be your launching pad. We promise." Um, yeah, real real bummer for Ida Sessions and her her dreams. So this has been a great discussion. And before we wrap up, we love to discuss with our guests how. We practice our anti-capitalist values as complex as this world is, as nuanced and complicated. Is there a practice that you uphold in your daily life that you want to share? Okay, I feel like this is a really unfair answer, but I'm, I feel so lucky to have a job where I get to just like write about 
the really horrible stuff corporations are doing and and their relationships with politicians. Um, and I put a huge amount of time and energy into it. And I think that is probably the primary way in my life in which I'm like living out any type of um, anti-capitalist practice. So it's a little bit of an irony to answer my job. But it's a good I think one. That's got to be my answer. Dare we say you're the hero of your own story? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, what I do every single day is awesome. Actually, <laughs> is my answer. No, that's a really good one. So, um, if, for any of our listeners, if you haven't read Julia's work over at levernews.com, check it out. Yes. Um, yeah, you're a Julia is a fantastic reporter. And is there any is there any piece in particular that you would point to really be like, hey, check out this one. I really like this one. I have um, a family member who will go unnamed who once worked for a bank. And he has this great line that's like, the thing about bank crimes is they're so obviously crimes. And honestly, it's it's writing about Silicon Valley Bank, the bank panic this week. Um I think just gives you a glimpse into really everything. Like at the end of the day, it all comes back to the banks. So I would really encourage anyone listening to read our coverage of Silicon Valley Bank. It's collapsed. The whole Lever team has been working on it. I I think I'm the only person at the Lever, I say this, who likes when there are like eight people in a Google Doc working on a story. But it's been some <laughs> days like that. Uh, I feel really proud of what we're doing. So yeah, I'd read our stuff about Silicon Valley Bank. Awesome. And Julia, where can our audience find you specifically on Twitter or wherever else? Yeah, they can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm usually pretty responsive to DMs. It's My Twitter is at Julia Rock, except instead of an I in Julia, I have a one. I couldn't get Julia Rock. So J-U-L-1-A-R-O-C-K. Well, Julia, thank you so much for joining us. I know you're super busy doing all the stuff that you just said. So we really appreciate your time. And this was a great chat. So thank you. Thank you. No, this is awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you all so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok. And if you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter. You can find all of that info at mvcpod.com. For next week's movie, we'll be watching the 2001 cult classic and scathing indictment of American consumerism, Josie and the Pussycats. Thanks, everyone. Bye.